Hey, Monica. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I am so good. We wrapped up our leadership summit on Tuesday and it went really well. Oh my gosh, it was so great. The presentations and the Q&As were super engaging and the topics were varied. Yet there were so many themes and connections to all of them. It was so cool. Yes, and today we're going to give our listeners a little taste of the summit. Which I love. So we have John Piatti, president of American Farmland Trust, who is a keynote speaker at this year's summit, sharing about the history of American Farmland Trust and how they are working to combine agriculture and environmentalism for a green biophilic future. I'm John Piatti, the president of American Farmland Trust, and it's a real pleasure to be part of this event. As someone who has spent my youth outside in the countryside, studied ecology, and now for the last 30 plus years have worked with farmers, the notion of biophilic really appeals to me, the love of nature and the connection to it. The biophilic notion is at the heart of agriculture. At every turn, farmers are reminded of the complex interplay between multiple elements, sun, soil, water, temperature, pests, predators, cow manure, green manure, so much more. Farmers are stewards of the land. If they are not successful as stewards, they have no hope of staying in business, not long-term. And they can only be successful as stewards if they work with nature. The flip side of that, if farming isn't done well, working in close concert with nature, it can't be sustained. And as I point out later in my talk, if farming can't be sustained, neither can our society. We need farming not just to feed us, but to heal our wounded planet. Some of you may know American Farmland Trust by our iconic bumper sticker, but there's a lot more to us. For 40 years, we've been working on critical issues that determine our future. But let's start long before that. I'm going to give you a whirlwind tour of agriculture in America. In 1837, John Deere invented the modern steel moldboard plow, and that changed everything. Before then, the turf across the heartland America was simply too tough to plant. What we did once we had the plow, this marvel of technology, is we did what we always do. We overuse it. We plowed and we plowed and we plowed. Now, excessive plowing was only one cause of the Dust Bowl, but it was a big one. And the Dust Bowl opened our eyes to the need for conservation. But a world war got in the way and our energies were focused elsewhere. And then after the war, much of the world faced famine. We applied new lessons of technology and industrialization to that problem, the so-called Green Revolution. It probably saved a billion lives, but it came with huge environmental cost. Then it was only in the 60s and 70s that we began to realize that these environmental costs were really hurting. There was an environmental awareness. And in the mid-70s, we begin to recognize how that is affecting farmland, both the loss of our farmland and the practices that are occurring on our land. And USDA partnered at that time with the President's Council on Environmental Quality to do something called the National Agricultural Land Study, the first effort to look at our farmland. And it seriously questioned whether we would have 
the land and the capabilities to feed ourselves in the future. In this backdrop, this is when American Farmland Trust was created. AFT was founded by Peggy Rockefeller, an impassioned environmentalist, conservationist, and farmer herself, as well as, of course, a philanthropist. Now, AFT's origin stories is fascinating. Peggy at that time sat on the board of the Nature Conservancy, which today does some really great work in agriculture, but it didn't back then. Back then, the agriculture community and the environmental community were at odds. Now, they are still in some ways, but not anything at the level like they were back then. Peggy and others saw how farming and environmental advocacy could and needed to be viewed as two sides of the same coin. She urged TNC to play that role, and TNC said no. She then pitched the idea to some other environmental organizations, and they all said no. And then she asked if agricultural groups were willing to take up an environmental agenda, and they all said no. These groups all defined themselves by being against the other side. They weren't going to join in viewing environmentalism and agriculture as two sides of the same coin. The only solution was to found a new organization, and AFT was born. Rockefeller assembled an amazing group of people. It included a future MacArthur Genius Award winner, another man who became president of the Sierra Club, and the former chief of USDA's Soil Conservation Service. The focus of the new organization was on something we call conservation agriculture. This involves two interrelated issues, the need to advance more environmentally beneficial farming practices and the need to protect farmland to ensure we have enough of it, not just to grow our food, but to provide a whole range of other services. We sometimes describe this as saving farmland both by the inch and by the acre. Now, let's jump back to 1980 and consider how different the landscape was in relation to conservation agriculture. There was only one agricultural land trust in the nation, no field of practice. The only people who really cared anything about agriculture were farmers and a few academics. The local food movement didn't exist. There were very few farmers markets, no CSAs, no restaurants that showcased local products. On the policy front, there were no programs for advancing farmland protection or better farming practices except one small program in one state focusing on farmland protection. The primary vehicle for advancing better farming, the conservation title of the Farm Bill, didn't exist. AFT helped change all that. We literally created the conservation agriculture movement. We worked at all levels with the municipalities and states as well as the federal government. And we worked on multiple topics that we saw as being interconnected. At the same time that we were getting big time ag groups to think about the environment, we were helping to found Grow Smart America. At the same time that we helped 29 states craft new farmland protection programs, we were helping communities do better land use planning in undertaking dozens of what we called community cost of service studies that convinced local leaders that it made good sense to keep and retain farms and open space. 
On the federal level, we wrote the Farmland Protection Act. We also wrote a conservation title into the Farm Bill, which has now provided over $115 billion for farmers to do what's right by the land. We'd not be having a conversation today about regenerative agriculture if it had not been for the foundation laid 36 years ago with the conservation title of the Farm Bill and all the good improvements and refinements that have been made since. In some ways, this is the greatest testament to AFT's success. So many groups now embrace the notion that farming and environmentalism are indeed two sides of the same coin. And it shows how much things have changed. And yet things need to change more, much more. The challenge of our day is climate. And farming has a pivotal role to play. AFT is not alone advancing this. We do have a longer track record and a deeper knowledge than others. And we have a broader perspective, which when it comes to climate change is critically important. Because agricultural solutions do not lie just in better farming practices as essential as those are. American Farmland Trust is the only national group that takes a truly holistic approach to agriculture. From our earliest days, we've always appreciated how the land, the practices employed on that land, and the people who steward that land are all part of a complex system. But I'm gonna to start today talking about farming practices. It's what everyone is talking about, and for good reason because our soil has the capacity to hold three times more carbon than our atmosphere. Now you'll hear about regenerative agriculture, which is the term increasingly used, but sometimes you'll hear restorative agriculture. You'll hear climate smart agriculture, which is the term USDA is increasingly using, and you'll hear carbon farm. In these terms, they're not exactly the same, but there's a lot of overlap and there's no reason to get hung up on the nuanced differences. The basic concept is the same, to use farming practices that maximize environmental benefits, including building soil health and sequestering carbon. What are these practices? Well, they include so-called no-till and low-till, where you have minimum disruptions of the soil. They include active crop rotations. They include the active use of cover crops, strategies like alley cropping, where you have crops in one portion of the property and, and maybe trees or pasturing and other portions. And for livestock, the notion of intensive rotational grazing and silvopasture, where you have trees interspersed with pasture and more and more. These practices are not new. AFT and enterprising farmers have been advancing them for decades, and some have been around for centuries. But society is finally catching up. I like to say that the world changed on October 6, 2018. That's when the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change stated that we will never meet. We will never meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accord simply by reducing emissions, as important as that is. That we also have to put carbon back into the soil. And the opportunity is there. AFT's research shows that we could put the equivalent of about 85 to 87 percent of agricultural emissions back into the ground by applying just two regenerative practices, cover crops and no-till, widespread adoption across the country.
That's just on our cropland, which is only 40% of our agricultural land. Taking other steps, other practices on cropland and applying regenerative practices also on pasture and rangeland could produce even greater results, making U.S. agriculture a net carbon sink. That's great. Finally, some good news around climate. But we need to be careful here to avoid blind optimism. The interplay between how we farm and the amount of farmland is just one example of the complications here. Now, it's absolutely wonderful that farming can both grow our food and at the same time provide essential environmental services. But as great as that is, we must remember that we can't maximize food production and environmental benefits on a single parcel. We can optimize striking the right balance between the two, but we can't maximize both. If the goal is to manage land to maximize food production, there's going to be some sacrifice to environmental benefits and vice versa. In this way, farming practices are directly linked to farmland loss. Every acre of farmland we lose, we are not only losing land that could be managed to provide environmental benefits, but we put more pressure on the remaining land to be farmed more intensely, since the demand for food's not going down. So it's a double hit, a reinforcing downward spiral. Now, this wouldn't be so big a deal if we weren't losing farmland so fast. But each day, 2,000 acres of America's farmland are paved over, fragmented, or converted to other uses. Now, some people hear that and really are alarmed, including a lot of intelligent people. And here are some of the things I hear them say. Well, we have plenty of land if we just didn't eat meat, which raising meat is very land intensive. I hear that. I hear, well, in the future, it's going to be different. We're not going to need farmland to grow our own food. There will be vertical farms. There will be other structures that will work for this. I hear that. And then I hear, well, aren't you forgetting the wonders of technology? Aren't we going to increase our productivity so we don't need as much land? Now, I can spend a lot of time talking about these three points, including the first one, this point about meat and around which there is a ton of misinformation. We have to remember that agriculture is a system, an integrated system that relies on both plants and animals synergistically interacting. True, livestock utilize a lot of farmland, but that's a good thing because when livestock are managed correctly, they improve that land. It's also true that Americans and people from other developed nations probably need to eat less meat. But I'd also argue that there are billions of people in developing nations who could probably benefit from eating more meat. The conversation we should be having is about how we raise meat the right way. Now, let's talk about the second point. We're not going to need farmland to grow all of our food. Well, in some ways, that's true, right? It would be great if every American had a home garden. Think what we did with the Victory Gardens during World War II. And I love what's happening in the urban environment, where we're cultivating smaller plots to grow food, realizing multiple community benefits in doing so. 
I'm also excited by what is sometimes referred to as vertical farming or controlled atmosphere farming. There's a part of me, a part of me that questions farming that is based on so much technology, lights, interior space, and the like. Still, it has a place, I think, for certain crops. But the bottom line is that the vast majority of our food will be grown on farmland now and into the foreseeable future. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing from someone who believes in the biophilic perspective, right? Because shouldn't our food be coming from working with nature, not through some technological solution? Finally, let me talk about the third point here about increased productivity. Society has seen huge increases in food production in the last hundred years. But the so-called Green Revolution, as I mentioned before, has also created a lot of problems. That's a trend line that can't continue. We must remember that increased production of the past came at a cost. Skyrocketing increase in the use of petroleum-based fertilizers. Not exactly a climate smart solution. I have no doubt that we'll increase productivity, but I question how much we can increase productivity if we want to aggressively pursue regenerative farming, as we must. This is because, as noted earlier, as you intensify food production, you limit opportunities for environmental benefit. If we don't stop farmland loss, we would need an unrealistic and environmentally unsound increase in food production to outpace the demand of a growing population eating a proper diet. Simply put, we can't risk losing more farmland. In fact, let me take this argument one step further and ask this, how much farmland do we really need? Or I could be a little bit more provocative and twist this question around and say, do we have enough farmland today? Now you may reply, well, of course we do, right? After all, here in the U.S., we grow far more food than we consume. We're transporting it elsewhere. We're using corn for ethanol, et cetera, et cetera. But what if we were farming differently? How much farmland would we need then? What if there was ample vegetation around every waterway to filter runoff, right? What if we utilize cover crops and crop rotations everywhere? Hmm? What if we took the marginal land that probably shouldn't be used for agriculture because it requires so many inputs for productivity? What if we had that go back to native prairie or woodland or wetlands? What if our goal was carbon neutrality and we were taking seriously regenerative practices in all this land? And then what if we wanted to elevate it to another level, which we need to do? Because agriculture has that opportunity to be a carbon sink in a way that other economic sectors don't. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? <laughs> the Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. 
I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. If we did all these things, would we have enough farmland today? Hey, but wait, there's more, right? Because I've been talking about the United States, and yet these are global issues. And there are ever-changing issues, given the growing population that will be demanding more and more food. And given, of course, changes in rainfall and temperature and sea level rise that come with climate change. So how much farmland do we need? It's a basic question that has gone unanswered because it's far more complicated than it sounds. Now, AFT is positioned to address this issue. It's the next logical step in a big research project that we've had going on for many years. We need a few more years. We need a few more million dollars, but we're working towards it. But even though the results are not all known yet, there's a key point that I can make with confidence now, and it's this. Long before we run out of the agricultural land that we are going to need to feed us, we are going to run out of the agricultural land that we need to help heal our planet. In fact, it's quite possible we might be extremely close to that tipping point. We just don't know. Now, my purpose here today was to show our ability to advance regenerative practices is directly tied to the amount of farmland that we retain. That's one example of the system here, but it's just one system. It's just one example, I should say, of that system. Another critical piece that I'll point out is how farmers who work that land are also essential to making sure that the system works. Even if you have enough farmland, the system breaks down if you don't have the people to work it. Now, this is becoming a huge issue across the globe. In the US, AFT estimates that almost 40% of our farmland will be in transition away from current ownership in the next 15 years, due simply to the age of the farmland owners. Where are we going to find this next generations of farmers and ranchers, folks willing and able to do the work? And if we don't find them, 
how much land is at risk of being lost to other uses, escalating a trend in farmland loss, which is already too great. Fortunately, our country is full of would-be farmers, both young people and retiring veterans and others who are interested in starting a second career. It's great. But they often don't have all the skills or the resources to enter the field. And that's why AFT runs programs to support next generation farmers and to lead efforts to protect farmland. Protecting farmland with a well-structured agricultural conservation easement is one way to make that land more affordable. So it's a system with many, many connections. Good land use planning, another example. It's critical to ensure that we will have the land we need, that it's not just sprawled out with inappropriate, wasteful development. And we need innovative models of development, just like we see here so powerfully at Serenity. If there's one thing the pandemic taught us, it's that we need more food produced close to home. We need more community resiliency in our food system. We need redundancy in our supply chains. And if we're serious about that, if we're serious about that, we need more small farms and farm infrastructure close to home. Everything from the infrastructure for urban agriculture to support for small farms to local meat processing facilities and the like. But it's not just about small farms, because if we're serious about carbon sequestration, we need to get the big farms to adopt new practices, because that's where the impact will be. So we need farms of all types and all scales. They all have a role to play, and they all can do better by the environment. And of course, there is that most direct and tangible connection here. It's to the food that we eat, right? The sustenance of our very lives and to the value of farms to provide this full range of environmental services, be it wildlife habitat, water recharge, open space, pollinator habitat, carbon capture, the list goes on. So what does all this mean? Well, to combat climate change, we desperately need to transition to regenerative farming. But regenerative practices by themselves won't guarantee anything. We will never realize our goal unless we have both sufficient farmland and enough farmers and ranchers suiting that land well. Now, we don't know how much agricultural land we need, but we could be getting close to a tipping point when we will not have enough to combat climate change. It's a system with multiple connections. Not only the connections around farming practices that I've alluded to, as important as they are, but also connections to better land use planning, innovative development models, and producing more food locally, be it in your garden, on the urban plot, or in small local farms. But there is realistic hope. We have for the last 40 plus years developed great tools to protect farmland, to advance better farming practices, and to work to keep farmers on the land and attract the next generation. We're simply not implementing these tools at the degree needed, at the scale that's needed. That's our challenge now to scale it up. But the good news is 
that we know what to do. Public policy has a big role to play here because we ultimately need on the farming side to be paying farmers a fair price, not just for the food that they grow, but for the wide range of environmental services that they provide. And there's a sea change here afoot. I've worked on agricultural policy for my whole career. And unlike the past, there is now a willingness in state legislators, in members of Congress, to think about agriculture and food issues in a different way and to take action. Call me naive, but I'm quite hopeful that the next Farm Bill in 2023 will be transformational. Part of the reason is that the public is increasingly aware. That manifests itself in pressure on their elected representatives. It also manifests itself in their consumer behavior. And the public is increasingly willing, at times excited, about using their purchasing dollar to affect real change. Whether that be purchasing products from big companies like General Mills that have made a commitment to work with farmers who follow regenerative practices, or be that buying more locally, be it through a CSA or at the local farmer's market, or be it living in places like Serenby that really are models of personal behavior that can lead to some of these great outcomes. So I am quite optimistic, but I'm most optimistic because of the growing number of people who care about these issues. More and more people who appreciate farming, farmers, and the food they grow. More and more people who are connecting to nature, who are committed to wellness, not just for themselves, but for our planet. In the end, that's what will produce the transformation we need. Thank you for your attention. Okay, so there you have it. That was our keynote presentation from the Biophilic Leadership Summit. I love the way American Parliament Trust looks at farming and agriculture in such a holistic way. I've really never thought about that before. They're working to conserve land, promote the best farming practices, and also protect farmers, which I really love. For anyone who feels unclear about what regenerative agriculture really means, that's it. Looking at all these things as one whole part, the healthy system. Absolutely. And how we can start being smarter about using agriculture to produce healthier food and solve major climate issues, as well as all the advocacy and policy work that AFT is doing. So many hopeful takeaways about the strides that AFT has been making to advance these healthier systems. And we'll start looking ahead to that farm bill in 2023. You bet. You can learn more about American Farmland Trust and get involved by heading to the show notes. Sign up for your No Farms, No Foods bumper sticker. All right. Talk to you later, Jennifer. Until next time. 